Chapter Eight, Part Two, of the Rainbow, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In a moment, she was clinging safely on his back again, and he was swimming in deep water. She was used to his nakedness and to her mother's nakedness ever since she was born. They were clinging to each other and making up to each other for the strange blow that had been struck at them. Yet still, on other days, he would leap again with her from the bridge, daringly, almost wickedly, till at length, as he leapt, once she dropped forward onto his head and nearly broke his neck, so that they fell into the water in a heap and fought for a few moments with death. He saved her and sat on the bank quivering, but his eyes were full of the blackness of death. It was as if death had cut between their two lives and separated them. Still they were not separate. There was this curious taunting intimacy between them. When the fair came, she wanted to go in the swing-boats. He took her, and, standing up in the boat, holding on to the irons, began to drive higher, perilously higher. The child clung fast on her seat. "'You want to go any higher?' he said to her, and she laughed with her mouth, her eyes wide and dilated. They were rushing through the air. "'Yes,' she said feeling as if she would turn into vapour, lose hold of everything, and melt away. The boat swung far up, then down like a stone, only to be caught sickeningly up again. "'Any higher?' he called, looking at her over his shoulder, his face evil and beautiful to her. She laughed with white lips. He sent the swing-boat sweeping through the air in a great semicircle, till it jerked and swayed at the high horizontal. The child clung on, pale, her eyes fixed on him. People below were calling. The jerk at the top had almost shaken them both out. He had done what he could, and he was attracting censure. He sat down and let the swing-boat swing itself out. People in the crowd cried shame on him as he came out of the swing-boat. He laughed. The child clung to his hand, pale and mute. In a while she was violently sick. He gave her lemonade, and she gulped a little. "'Don't tell your mother you've been sick,' he said. There was no need to ask that. When she got home, the child crept away under the parlour sofa, like a sick little animal, and was a long time before she crawled out. But Anna got to know of this escapade, and was passionately angry and contemptuous of him. His golden-brown eyes glittered. He had a strange, cruel little smile. And as the child watched him, for the first time in her life, a disillusion came over her, something cold and isolating. She went over to her mother. Her soul was dead towards him. It made her sick. Still she forgot and continued to love him, but ever more coldly. He was at this time, when he was about twenty-eight years old, strange and violent in his being, sensual. He acquired some power over Anna, over everybody he came into contact with. After a long bout of hostility, Anna at last closed with him. She had now four children, all girls. For seven years she had been absorbed in wifehood and motherhood. For years he had gone on beside her, never really encroaching upon her. Then gradually another self seemed to assert its being within him. He was still silent and separate, but she could feel him all the while coming near upon her, as if his breast and his body were threatening her and he was always coming closer. Gradually he became indifferent of responsibility, 
He would do what pleased him, and no more. He began to go away from home. He went to Nottingham on Saturdays, always alone, to the football match and to the music hall, and all the time he was watching, in readiness. He never cared to drink. But, with his hard, golden-brown eyes, so keen seeing with their tiny black pupils, he watched all the people, everything that happened, and he waited. In the Empire one evening he sat next to two girls. He was aware of the one beside him. She was rather small, common, with a fresh complexion and an upper lip that lifted from her teeth, so that, when she was not conscious, her mouth was slightly open, and her lips pressed outwards, in a kind of blind appeal. She was strongly aware of the man next to her, so that all her body was still, very still. Her face watched the stage. Her arms went down into her lap, very self-conscious and still. A gleam lit up in him. Should he begin with her? Should he begin with her to live the other, the unadmitted life of his desire? Why not? He had always been so good. Save for his wife, he was a virgin. And why, when all women were different? Why, when he would only live once? He wanted the other life. His own life was barren, not enough. He wanted the other. Her open mouth, showing the small, irregular white teeth, appealed to him. It was open and ready. It was so vulnerable. Why should he not go in and enjoy what was there? The slim arm that went down so still and motionless to the lap, it was pretty. She would be small, he would be able almost to hold her in his two hands. She would be small, almost like a child, and pretty. Her childishness whetted him keenly. She would be helpless between his hands. "'That was the best turn we've had,' he said to her, leaning over as he clapped his hands. He felt strong and unshakable in himself, set over against all the world. His soul was keen and watchful, glittering with a kind of amusement. He was perfectly self-contained. He was himself, the absolute. The rest of the world was the object that should contribute to his being. The girl started, turned round, her eyes lit up with an almost painful flash of a smile. The colour came deeply in her cheeks. "'Yes, it was,' she said, quite meaninglessly, and she covered her rather prominent teeth with her lips. Then she sat looking straight before her, seeing nothing, only conscious of the colour burning in her cheeks. It pricked him with a pleasant sensation. His veins and nerves attended to her. She was so young and palpitating. "'It's not such a good programme as last week's,' he said. Again she half turned her face to him, and her clear, bright eyes, bright like shallow water, filled with light, frightened, yet involuntarily lighting and shaking with response. "'Oh, isn't it? I wasn't able to come last week.' He noted the common accent. It pleased him. He knew what class she came of. Probably she was a warehouse lass. He was glad she was a common girl. He proceeded to tell her about the last week's programme. She answered at random, very confusedly. The colour burned in her cheek. Yet she always answered him. The girl on the other side sat remotely, obviously silent. He ignored her. All his address was for his own girl, with her bright, shallow eyes and her vulnerably opened mouth. The talk went on, meaningless and random on her part, quite deliberate and purposive on his. It was a pleasure to him to make this conversation, an activity pleasant as a fine game of chance and skill. He was very quiet and pleasant-humoured, 
but so full of strength. She fluttered beside his steady pressure of warmth and his surety. He saw the performance drawing to a close. His senses were alert and willful. He would press his advantages. He followed her and her plain friend down the stairs to the street. It was raining. "'It's a nasty night,' he said. "'Shall you come and have a drink of something? A cup of coffee? It's early yet.' "'Oh, I don't think so,' she said, looking away into the night. "'I wish you would,' he said, putting himself, as it were, at her mercy. There was a moment's pause. "'Come to Rollins,' he said. "'No, not there. To Carson's, then?' There was a silence. The other girl hung on. The man was the centre of positive force. "'Will your friend come as well?' There was another moment of silence, while the other girl felt her ground. "'No, thanks,' she said. "'I've promised to meet a friend.' "'Another time, then,' he said. "'Oh, thanks,' she replied. Very awkward. "'Good night,' he said. "'See you later,' said his girl to her friend. "'Where?' said the friend. "'You know, Gertie,' replied his girl. "'All right, Jenny.' The friend was gone into the darkness. He turned with his girl to the tea-shop. They talked all the time. He made his sentences in sheer, almost muscular pleasure of exercising himself with her. He was looking at her all the time, perceiving her, appreciating her, finding her out, gratifying himself with her. He could see distinct attractions in her. Her eyebrows, with their particular curve, gave him keen, aesthetic pleasure. Later on he would see her bright, pellucid eyes, like shallow water, and know those and there remained the open, exposed mouth, red and vulnerable. That he reserved as yet. And all the while his eyes were on the girl, estimating and handling with pleasure her young softness. About the girl herself, who or what she was, he cared nothing. He was quite unaware that she was anybody. She was just the sensual object of his attention. "'Shall we go, then?' he said. She rose in silence, as if acting without a mind, merely physically. He seemed to hold her in his will. Outside it was still raining. "'Let's have a walk,' he said. "'I don't mind the rain, do you?' "'No, I don't mind it,' she said. He was alert in every sense and fibre, and yet quite sure and steady, and lit up, as if transfused. He had a free sensation of walking in his own darkness, not in anybody else's world at all. He was purely a world to himself. He had nothing to do with any general consciousness. Just his own senses were supreme. All the rest was external, insignificant, leaving him alone with this girl whom he wanted to absorb, whose properties he wanted to absorb into his own senses. He did not care about her, except that he wanted to overcome her resistance, to have her in his power, fully and exhaustively, to enjoy her. They turned into the dark streets. He held her umbrella over her and put his arm round her. She walked as if she were unaware, but gradually, as he walked, he drew her a little closer, into the movement of his side and hip. She fitted in there very well. It was a real good fit to walk with her like this. It made him exquisitely aware of his own muscular self, and his hand that grasped her side felt one curve of her, and it seemed like a new creation to him, a reality, an absolute, an existing, tangible beauty of the absolute. It was like a star. Everything in him was absorbed in the sensual delight of this one, small, firm curve in her body that his hand and his whole being had lighted upon. 
he led her into the park, where it was almost dark. He noticed a corner between two walls, under a great overhanging bush of ivy. "'Let us stand here a minute,' he said. He put down the umbrella, and followed her into the corner, retreating out of the rain. He needed no eyes to see. All he wanted was to know through touch. She was like a piece of palpable darkness. He found her in the darkness, put his arms round her, and his hands upon her. She was silent and inscrutable. But he did not want to know anything about her. He only wanted to discover her. And through her clothing, what absolute beauty he touched. "'Take your hat off,' he said. Silently, obediently, she shook off her hat and gave herself to his arms again. He liked her. He liked the feel of her. He wanted to know her more closely. He let his fingers subtly seek out her cheek and neck. What amazing beauty and pleasure in the dark! His fingers had often touched Anna on the face and neck like that. What matter? It was one man who touched Anna, another who now touched this girl. He liked best his new self. He was given over altogether to the sensuous knowledge of this woman, and every moment he seemed to be touching absolute beauty, something beyond knowledge. Very close, marvelling and exceedingly joyful in their discoveries, his hands pressed upon her, so subtly, so seekingly, so finely and desirously searching her out, that she too was almost swooning in the absolute of sensual knowledge. In utter sensual delight she clenched her knees, her thighs, her loins together. It was an added beauty to him. But he was patiently working for her relaxation, patiently, his whole being fixed in the smile of latent gratification, his whole body electric with a subtle, powerful, reducing force upon her. So he came at length to kiss her, and she was almost betrayed by his insidious kiss. Her open mouth was too helpless and unguarded. He knew this, and his first kiss was very gentle, and soft, and assuring, so assuring, so that her soft, defenceless mouth became assured, even bold, seeking upon his mouth. And he answered her gradually, gradually, his soft kiss sinking in softly, softly, but ever more heavily, more heavily yet, till it was too heavy for her to meet, and she began to sink under it. She was sinking, sinking. His smile of latent gratification was becoming more tense. He was sure of her. He let the whole force of his will sink upon her to sweep her away. But it was too great a shock for her. With a sudden horrible movement she ruptured the state that contained them both. Don't! Don't! It was a rather horrible cry that seemed to come out of her, not to belong to her. It was some strange agony of terror crying out the words. There was something vibrating and beside herself in the noise. His nerves ripped like silk. "'What's the matter?' he said, as if calmly. "'What's the matter?' She came back to him, but trembling, reservedly this time. Her cry had given him gratification. But he knew he had been too sudden for her. He was now careful. For a while he merely sheltered her. Also there had broken a flaw into his perfect will. He wanted to persist, to begin again, to lead up to the point where he had let himself go on her, and then manage more carefully, successfully. So far she had won, and the battle was not over yet. But another voice woke in him, and prompted him to let her go, 
let her go in contempt. He sheltered her, and soothed her, and caressed her, and kissed her, and again began to come nearer, nearer. He gathered himself together. Even if he did not take her, he would make her relax, he would fuse away her resistance. So softly, softly, with infinite caressiveness he kissed her, and the whole of his being seemed to fondle her, till, at the verge, swooning at the breaking point, there came from her a beaten, inarticulate, moaning cry, Don't! Oh, don't! His veins fused with extreme voluptuousness. For a moment he almost lost control of himself, and continued automatically. But there was a moment of inaction, of cold suspension. He was not going to take her. He drew her to him and soothed her and caressed her. But the pure zest had gone. She struggled to herself and realised he was not going to take her. And then, at the very last moment, when his fondling had come near again, his hot living desire despising her, against his cold sensual desire, she broke violently away from him. "'Don't!' she cried, harsh now with hatred, and she flung her hand across and hit him violently. "'Keep off of me!' His blood stood still for a moment. Then the smile came again within him, steady, cruel. "'Why, what's the matter?' he said, with suave irony. "'Nobody's going to hurt you?' "'I know what you want,' she said. "'I know what I want,' he said. "'What's the odds?' "'Well, you're not going to have it off me.' "'Aren't I? Well, then I'm not. It's no use crying about it, is it?' "'No, it isn't,' said the girl, rather disconcerted by his irony. "'But there's no need to have a row about it. We can kiss good-night just the same, can't we?' She was silent in the darkness. "'Or do you want your hat and umbrella to go home this minute?' Still she was silent. He watched her dark figure as she stood there on the edge of the faint darkness, and he waited. "'Come and say good-night nicely, if we're going to say it,' he said. Still she did not stir. He put his hand out and drew her into the darkness again. "'It's warmer in here,' he said, "'a lot cosier. His will had not yet relaxed from her. The moment of hatred exhilarated him. "'I'm going now,' she muttered, as he closed his hand over her. "'See how well you fit your place,' he said, as he drew her to her previous position, close upon him. "'What do you want to leave it for?' And gradually the intoxication invaded him again. The zest came back. After all, why should he not take her? But she did not yield to him entirely. "'Are you a married man?' she asked, at length. "'What if I am?' he said. She did not answer. "'I don't ask whether you're married or not,' he said. "'You know jolly well I'm not,' she answered hotly. Oh, if she could only break away from him, if only she need not yield to him. At length her will became cold against him. She had escaped. But she hated him for her escape more than for her danger. Did he despise her so coldly? And she was in a torture of adherence to him still. "'Shall I see you next week, next Saturday?' he said, as they returned to the town. She did not answer. "'Come to the Empire with me, you and Gertie,' he said. "'I should look well, going with a married man,' she said. "'I'm no less of a man for being married, am I?' he said. "'Oh, it's a different matter altogether with a married man,' she said, in a ready-made speech that showed her chagrin. "'How's that?' he asked. But she would not enlighten him. Yet she promised, without promising, to be at the meeting-place next Saturday evening. So he left her. 
He did not know her name. He caught a train and went home. It was the last train. He was very late. He was not home till midnight. But he was quite indifferent. He had no real relation with his home, not this man which he now was. Anna was sitting up for him. She saw the queer, absolved look on his face, a sort of latent, almost sinister smile, as if he were absolved from his good ties. "'Where have you been?' she asked, puzzled, interested. "'To the Empire. Who with?' "'By myself. I came home with Tom Cooper.' She looked at him and wondered what he had been doing. She was indifferent as to whether he lied or not. "'You have come home very strange,' she said, and there was an appreciative inflection in the speech. He was not affected. As for his humble, good self, he was absolved from it. He sat down and ate heartily. He was not tired. He seemed to take no notice of her. For Anna the moment was critical. She kept herself aloof and watched him. He talked to her but with a little indifference, since he was scarcely aware of her. So, then she did not affect him. Here was a new turn of affairs. He was rather attractive, nevertheless. She liked him better than the ordinary mute, half-effaced, half-subdued man she usually knew him to be. So, he was blossoming out into his real self. It piqued her. Very good. Let him blossom. She liked a new turn of affairs. He was a strange man come home to her. Glancing at him, she saw she could not reduce him to what he had been before. In an instant she gave it up, yet not without a pang of rage which would insist on their old, beloved love, their old, accustomed intimacy, and her old, established supremacy. She almost rose up to fight for them. And looking at him, and remembering his father, she was wary. This was the new turn of affairs. Very good, if she could not influence him in the old way, she would be level with him in the new. Her old defiant hostility came up. Very good, she too was out on her own adventure. Her voice, her manner changed. She was ready for the game. Something was liberated in her. She liked him. She liked this strange man come home to her. He was very welcome indeed. She was very glad to welcome a stranger. She had been bored by the old husband. To his latent, cruel smile she replied with brilliant challenge. He expected her to keep the moral fortress. Not she. It was much too dull a part. She challenged him back with a sort of radiance, very bright and free, opposite to him. He looked at her, and his eyes glinted. She too was out in the field. His senses pricked up and keenly attended to her. She laughed, perfectly indifferent and loose as he was. He came towards her. She neither rejected him nor responded to him. In a kind of radiance, superb in her inscrutability, she laughed before him. She too could throw everything overboard, love, intimacy, responsibility. What were her four children to her now? What did it matter that this man was the father of her four children? He was the sensual male seeking his pleasure, she was the female ready to take hers, but in her own way. A man could turn into a freelance, so then could a woman. She adhered as little as he to the moral world. All that had gone before was nothing to her. She was another woman, under the instance of a strange man. He was a stranger to her, seeking his own ends. Very good. She wanted to see what this stranger would do now, what he was. She laughed, 
and kept him at arm's length, whilst apparently ignoring him. She watched him undress as if he were a stranger. Indeed, he was a stranger to her. And she roused him profoundly, violently, even before he touched her. The little creature in Nottingham had been but leading up to this. They abandoned in one motion the moral position. Each was seeking gratification, pure and simple. Strange his wife was to him. It was as if he were a perfect stranger, as if she were infinitely and essentially strange to him, the other half of the world, the dark half of the moon. She waited for his touch as if he were a marauder who had come in, infinitely unknown and desirable to her, and he began to discover her. He had an inkling of the vastness of the unknown sensual store of delights she was, with a passion of voluptuousness that made him dwell on each tiny beauty, in a kind of frenzy of enjoyment, he lit upon her, her beauty, the beauties, the separate, several beauties of her body. He was quite ousted from himself, and sensually transported by that which he discovered in her. He was another man revelling over her. There was no tenderness, no love between them any more, only the maddening, sensuous lust for discovery, and the insatiable, exorbitant gratification in the sensual beauties of her body. And she was a store, a store of absolute beauties that it drove him to contemplate. There was such a feast to enjoy, and he with only one man's capacity. He lived in a passion of sensual discovery with her for some time. It was a duel, no love, no words, no kisses even, only the maddening perception of beauty consummate, absolute through touch. He wanted to touch her, to discover her, maddeningly he wanted to know her. Yet he must not hurry, or he missed everything. He must enjoy one beauty at a time, and the multitudinous beauties of her body, the many little rapturous places, sent him mad with delight, and with desire to be able to know more, to have strength to know more, for all was there. He would say during the daytime, "'Tonight I shall know the little hollow under her ankle where the blue vein crosses,' and the thought of it, and the desire for it, made a thick darkness of anticipation. He would go all the day waiting for the night to come, when he could give himself to the enjoyment of some luxurious absolute of beauty in her. The thought of the hidden resources of her, the undiscovered beauties, and the ecstatic places of delight in her body, waiting, only waiting for him to discover them, sent him slightly insane. He was obsessed. If he did not discover and make known to himself these delights, they might be lost for ever. He wished he had a hundred men's energies with which to enjoy her. He wished he were a cat, to lick her with a rough, grating, lascivious tongue. He wanted to wallow in her, bury himself in her flesh, cover himself over with her flesh. And she, separate, with a strange, dangerous, glistening look in her eyes, received all his activities upon her, as if they were expected by her, and provoked him when he was quiet to more till sometimes he was ready to perish for sheer inability to be satisfied of her, inability to have had enough of her. Their children became mere offspring to them. They lived in the darkness and death of their own sensual activities. Sometimes he felt he was going mad with a sense of absolute beauty, perceived by him in her through his senses. 
it was something too much for him. And in everything was this same, almost sinister, terrifying beauty. But in the revelations of her body through contact with his body was the ultimate beauty. To know which was almost death in itself, and yet for the knowledge of which he would have undergone endless torture. He would have forfeited anything, anything, rather than forego his right even to the instep of her foot, and the place from which the toes radiated out, the little, miraculous white plain from which ran the little hillocks of the toes, and the folded, dimpling hollows between the toes. He felt he would have died rather than forfeit this. This was what their love had become, a sensuality, violent and extreme as death. They had no conscious intimacy, no tenderness of love. It was all the lust and the infinite, maddening intoxication of the sense, a passion of death. He had always, all his life, had a secret dread of absolute beauty. It had always been like a fetish to him, something to fear, really. For it was immoral and against mankind. So he had turned to the Gothic form, which always asserted the broken desire of mankind in its pointed arches, escaping the rolling, absolute beauty of the round arch. But now he had given way, and with infinite sensual violence gave himself to the realisation of this supreme, immoral, absolute beauty in the body of a woman. It seemed to him that it came to being in the body of a woman under his touch. Under his touch, even under his sight, it was there. But when he neither saw nor touched the perfect place, it was not perfect. It was not there. And he must make it exist. But still the thing terrified him. Awful and threatening it was, dangerous to a degree, even whilst he gave himself to it. It was pure darkness also. All the shameful things of the body revealed themselves to him now with a sort of sinister, tropical beauty. All the shameful, natural and unnatural acts of sensual voluptuousness which he and the woman partook of together, created together, they had their heavy beauty and their delight. Shame, what was it? It was part of extreme delight. It was that part of delight of which man is usually afraid. Why afraid? The secret, shameful things are most terribly beautiful. They accepted shame, and were one with it, in their most unlicensed pleasures. It was incorporated. It was a bud that blossomed into beauty and heavy, fundamental gratification. Their outward life went on much the same, but the inward life was revolutionised. The children became less important. The parents were absorbed in their own living, and gradually... Brangwen began to find himself free to attend to the outside life as well. His intimate life was so violently active that it set another man in him free, and this new man turned with interest to public life, to see what part he could take in it. This would give him scope for new activity, activity of a kind for which he was now created and released. He wanted to be unanimous with the whole of purposive mankind. At this time education was in the forefront as a subject of interest. There was the talk of new Swedish methods, of handwork instruction, and so on. Brangwen embraced sincerely the idea of handwork in schools. For the first time he began to take real interest in a public affair. He had at length from his profound sensual activity developed a real purposive self. 
There was talk of night schools and of handicraft classes. He wanted to start a woodwork class in Cossethay, to teach carpentry and joinery and wood-carving to the village boys two nights a week. This seemed to him a supremely desirable thing to be doing. His pay would be very little, and when he had it he spent it all on extra wood and tools, but he was very happy and keen in his new public spirit. He started his night classes in woodwork when he was thirty years old. By this time he had five children, the last a boy, but boy or girl mattered very little to him. He had a natural blood affection for his children, and he liked them as they turned up, boys or girls. Only he was fondest of Ursula. Somehow she seemed to be at the back of his new night-school venture. The house by the yew-trees was in connection with the great human endeavour at last. It gained a new vigour thereby. To Ursula, a child of eight, the increase in magic was considerable. She heard all the talk. She saw the parish room fitted up as a workshop. The parish room was a high, stone, barn-like, ecclesiastical building, standing away by itself in the Brangwen's second garden, across the lane. She was always attracted by its age and its stranded obsoleteness. Now she watched preparations made. She sat on the flight of stone steps that came down from the porch to the garden, and heard her father and the vicar talking and planning and working. Then an inspector came, a very strange man, and stayed talking with her father all one evening. Everything was settled, and twelve boys enrolled their names. It was very exciting. But to Ursula everything her father did was magic. Whether he came from Ilkeston with news of the town, whether he went across to the church with his music or his tools on a sunny evening, whether he sat in his white surplice at the organ on Sundays, leading the singing with his strong tenor voice, or whether he were in the workshop with the boys, he was always a centre of magic and fascination to her, his voice sounding out in command, cheerful, laconic, had always a twang in it that sent a thrill over her blood and hypnotised her. She seemed to run in the shadow of some dark, potent secret of which she would not, of whose existence even she dared not become conscious. It cast such a spell over her, and so darkened her mind. End of chapter 8, part 2 Read by Tony Foster